December 25th is by far the most recognized day of the year. Every Christian knows that December 25th is Christmas Day, the day we use to celebrate and commemorate the birth of Christ. Even non-Christians understand that at least the intention of the holiday is to remember the birth of Christ. Same goes for Easter. Easter is observed all around the world, and even for those who don't celebrate it, most people know it's meant to commemorate the resurrection of Christ. But what if I told you there's another very special day on the Christian calendar that almost no one knows about? There's probably the the number three day that's never celebrated, comes up, goes, no one even knows about it. And this year it landed on Thursday, May 14th. And does that ring a bell? Chances are May 14th came and went. You had no clue what the day was supposed to commemorate. But this year, May 14th marked Ascension Day. Ascension Day. Ascension Day takes place 40 days after Easter and commemorates the day when Jesus left earth and ascended back into heaven. And it's easily on par with Christmas and Easter when it comes to significance for your your Christian life. But like I said, nobody knows about it. Nobody remembers it. Nobody celebrates it. Few have even heard about it or have heard teaching on it. Every aspect of the life of Christ is studied and remembered and celebrated by the church. His preexistence, his birth, his life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, his return, his reign. But missing in that chain between the resurrection and the return is the ascension. And that's largely the forgotten work and ministry of Jesus. Without the ascension, the resurrection is not finished, Pentecost is impeded, and the return is not possible. Even the gospel itself is left missing some screws without the truth of the ascension. What's the gospel? What's the good news? It includes the fact that Jesus was dead, died for our sins, but then he's alive. But that, that's not the whole story. I mean, if he's alive now, where is he? What's he like now? What's he doing now? And what does that mean for us? These are all essential truths, even for the Christian life. You need to know, but chances are you you probably don't or haven't heard of, heard of them or thought of them much. And if you can't tell already, we're going to try and change that this morning. Today we're going to embark on a little study exposing you to the significance of the ascension. This is not out of the blue. We're currently on Sunday mornings making our way through the Gospel of Mark. And in our passage from last week, we encountered a text that mentioned the ascension. So Mark 12, verse 36, Jesus was quoting Psalm 110, a prophetic messianic psalm, where as he quotes, he says, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Then we really hashed that passage out last week, and Christ is bringing this up to display that David's son, the Messiah, is also David's Lord. He's teaching that the son of David is also the son of God. And that's the focus. It's on the identity of the Messiah. It's not really making a point about the ascension. And so that's why last week when we studied that passage, we didn't really talk about the ascension, sitting at the right hand, all that stuff. It's not the main point. But that being said, this still stands as a prophetic prediction of the ascension of the Messiah. Even in the Old Testament, there was some understanding that the Messiah would come to earth, do some work, and then be invited up to the Father's right hand until, keyword until, His enemies were beneath his feet, and then he would return. And we find this all perfectly fulfilled in the life of Christ. We pay attention to the various aspects of his life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, that return. 
But you can't leave out the ascension. For there can be no return if he does not first ascend. What goes up must come down. And he first, he had to go up. Last week we spent little to no time talking about the ascension of Jesus and his session at the right hand of the Father. But we don't want to pass up on this subject matter entirely. So today, we're going to take a brief break from Mark in order to ensure that we don't miss the significance of the ascension. So that's what we're going to do to get things started. If you want to grab your Bible, open them to Luke chapter 24. Open up to Luke 24. And first things first, I want to at least make sure you know what we're talking about. What is the ascension? Do you, do you know what I even mean by that? What actually happened? Before we worry about its significance, we want to first just make sure you're on the same page. You know what the ascension is. And we hear about it in Luke chapter 24, the historical event of the ascension. Just want to refresh our memories of it. The Gospel of Luke ends with an account of the resurrection of Jesus. And following that, you have his, his little a form of his final commission to his disciples. And then after that, the very last verses of Luke record the ascension when he's taken up into heaven. And so let's just read Luke 24, 50 through 53. Luke 24, verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. After 40 days of post-resurrection discipleship, Jesus leads his disciples to Bethany, which is on the Mount of Olives. And from there, he's carried up to heaven. He's supernaturally lifted up, defying gravity, and he leaves their sight. Now, before we just comment on this, I want you to keep that in mind and now just flip over real quick to Acts chapter 1. Just turn to the right to Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts was also written by Luke. It's like part 2 of Luke. And he tells us what took place in the church after Jesus ascended. But he actually begins the book of Acts by re-recording the ascension and in greater detail. So again, he tells us Jesus, he's ministering to his disciples for 40 days after the resurrection, after which he is taken up to heaven from the Mount of Olives. And so we see that the second record of the ascension in Acts chapter 1, and we'll just look at verses 9 through 11. Acts 1 verse 9, After he had said these things again, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, Two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Middle-aged artists often depicted the ascension, the disciples standing around Jesus, being carried up into heaven, floating on his own little personal mini-cloud, like a, like a hoverboard, he's like flying up into heaven on top of a cloud. And that's not quite the picture. He is defying gravity. He is ascending into the sky, but he's received into a cloud. And that cloud is surely none other than the Shekinah glory cloud of God. 
This is the same cloud that filled the Old Testament tabernacle. It represents the, the very presence of God Himself. And as the cloud receives Jesus, both He and the cloud of God's glory disappear, vanish from their sight. Fair question, where did it go? Where did, where did Jesus go? Where did the cloud go? Well, in the Old Testament, when that cloud came and then later vanished, where did the cloud go? Well, we would say to heaven, which is a real place, but I guess we would say in another realm. And that's where Jesus went as well. He did not ascend and just keep going so that he's now like living behind Jupiter or something like that. He ascended into heaven, the spiritual realm. Now, we can say a lot about the significance of this event, and we're going to, but we can already piece together a few things. Jesus, he could have ascended in private, couldn't he? He didn't have to have the disciples stand there watching him. But he purposely invited them to watch him ascend into heaven. And why would he do that? Well, what's he trying to to teach or communicate by purposely having them watch him ascend? We can already piece together. I mean, before, he had told his disciples not long before that, that he was going to leave them and they would not see him any longer. But at the ascension, he's letting them know that's not because he's globetrotting. It's because he has gone into heaven. He's not here anymore. He's not on earth. He's in heaven. And as Jesus ascends, they know they don't need to go looking for him. He's not on a journey. He's in heaven. And similarly, being by seeing Jesus ascend, they know not to be fooled by anyone on earth who claims to be Jesus. He, he's in heaven. And what greater evidence is there that Jesus came from God and came from heaven as they watch him now ascend back to heaven they know with greater assurance, well, that's, that's where he came from. He is the Son of God, and he's returning to the Father. But again, the point is, the ascension teaches he is now in heaven. And that's really significant. It really is. It's not, it's not just that he's alive. He's alive, and he's in heaven. Seated at the right hand of the Father, it's, it's really supremely significant. And that's why this, this morning we're going to try and unravel that further. You get, you get the event of the ascension. It's, it's pretty straightforward. He's taken up into heaven and they see it. That part's not complicated, although it is miraculous. But we want to continue to reflect on this event and its implications. What does it mean for us today that Jesus, he's alive and in heaven and at the right hand of the Father? How, how, does that, how should that impact your daily life? And it should. It really should, but you need to see that. You want to reflect on that. What happened at the ascension? It's up there with the death and the resurrection of Christ when it comes to the impact it should have on us. And so I want you to see this and appreciate this this morning. So with the rest of our time, I want to give you ten reasons why the ascension is so significant. Ten reasons why the ascension is so significant so that you may grow in your understanding, appreciation, and pursuit of Jesus. It's actually, there's so much here, it's going to take us two weeks. So this week, next week, we're going to be doing this. But really, pay attention to this one. This is where theology really meets practice. You'll see how practical this is. Now, this should impact our lives. Ten reasons why the ascension is so significant, even for our daily lives. We'll get started this week, we'll finish it next week. But let's start with number one. Number one, it marks the end of Christ's humiliation. The first reason, the ascension marks the end of Christ's humiliation. 
It's actually probably more important than you may think. I'll explain. In the period of when Jesus, when he lived on earth, it's commonly referred to as the time of his humiliation. Because during this time, he, he was greatly humble and humbled. Philippians 2.8 says of Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just think about everything that took place during the incarnation and how much humility it required of, of God the Son. I mean, here was the second member of the Trinity existing in perfect glory, receiving nothing but praise. But then God the Son took on a human nature, came to earth, and he was very humble to do so. He took on the form of a man, born of a virgin, experienced life as a helpless infant, lived in very humble circumstances. And throughout this time, just to be clear, Christ's glory was possessed but not expressed. His divine nature was possessed but not expressed. He didn't lose his divinity coming to earth, but it was veiled. His glory was veiled. Think of a, a flawless, shimmering diamond that's covered in mud. Its glory is still intact, has not changed at all. It's just been covered, veiled. And, and likewise, Jesus allowed his divine glory to be veiled by humanity. And that in itself required great humility for God the Son to undergo that. And on top of that, do you recall how God the Son was treated during this incarnation? wasn't recognized. Later, he was mocked, slandered, ridiculed, only then to be whipped, beaten, spat upon, crucified. And trust me, that's not how God the Son was used to being treated before the incarnation. Of course, this was the purpose for which he came. As Hebrews 2.9 says, God made him for a little while lower than the angels into a man so that he might taste death for everyone. He came for that purpose, to die, to redeem. But you need to realize that right now, the time of his humiliation is over. We're not saying the incarnation is over. The Bible actually teaches that he's still the God-man. He retains that human nature. But his glory is no longer veiled. His divine nature is, you could say, unleashed, unveiled. This is not the time of his humiliation but exaltation. Philippians 2.9, which we just read, recalls how he was, he was humbled unto death. But the next verse, verse 9, says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. You have to realize Jesus now has been exalted. His glory is made known. And he no longer hears the sound of mocking voices. But again, hears even a greater chorus of saints and angels praising him. Like Revelation 5.12 says, They are singing now, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And when did that change take place? It started at the resurrection, but it was finished at the ascension. This happened at the ascension. And consider the Apostle John for a second. John, you know, he's the beloved disciple. No one was closer to Jesus than John. And John, he saw Jesus like always. He saw him at his baptism, all throughout his ministry. He saw him at his death. He saw him at the resurrection, transfiguration before that, even after the resurrection. However, in Revelation chapter 1, 
John is given a vision of Jesus as he exists right now. And it's different. He sees Jesus like he's never seen him before. He sees him in glory, unchecked glory. And for the sake of time, you will have to read it for yourself, Revelation 1, verses 13 through 18. But the point is, when John sees Jesus now, after the ascension, it's so glorious that John falls down like a dead man at the feet of Jesus. This is not like he's ever seen him before. Even after the resurrection, it wasn't like that. But this is the ascended glory of, of Christ. He's not in humiliation, he's in exaltation. And there really is an important point when you think about it. It's a practical question for you. When you think of Jesus right now, or when you, if you pray to him, how do you think of him? Many Catholics, for example, like to, in a way, perpetually think of Jesus like a baby. He's baby Jesus, cute, mild, meek, almost helpless. It's convenient, gives an excuse for, for Mary to stick around. Others like to think of Jesus like a wise man, teaching his disciples, like a sage just kind of strolling around. Some people, when you think of Jesus or, or pray to him, you, maybe you picture a, a man bloodied on a cross. I'm not trying to downplay the birth or death of Jesus, but realize that he is not now the baby in the manger. And he is not now the man hanging on the cross. Instead, right now, he exists as the risen, glorified Savior. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He possesses all power and authority and glory and dominion. He's the exalted king. Again, read Revelation 1 for yourself. See for yourself, but recognize the impact that should have. When you pray to Jesus, you're not calling out to a a helpless baby or a man defeated by death. You're, You're appealing to the sovereign Lord. And accordingly, you can trust him. You can trust him. You can take refuge in his power. You can rest assured in his sovereignty. He's the exalted Lord. And you can know that as he defeated death once, he's going to defeat death once for all. You can take comfort in that even yourself. And to start, you have to just begin by understanding that at the ascension, the time of his humiliation is no more. This is the time of his eternal exaltation. And so you need to exalt him in your heart. You are called to confess him as Lord now. Jesus will return. And when he returns, what's it going to be like? He's not coming back as a, as a mild baby or a meek teacher. He's coming back in that form as the glorified, risen, exalted Savior to judge, to exert his dominion over the earth. But as you confess him as Lord now, as you exalt him in your heart as Lord now, and he comes back, he comes for you, not for judgment, but for, for rescue. But it starts with getting the ascension right. First, the ascension marks the end of Christ's humiliation. That time is over. On the flip side of this, number two, the ascension marks the beginning of Christ's heavenly rule. It marks the beginning of Christ's heavenly rule. This is obviously part and parcel with his exaltation, but the ascension marked the beginning of Christ's heavenly rule and authority. This stems from what we learned last week back with Psalm 110 where the Messiah would be seated at the right hand of God and that was fulfilled when Jesus ascended into heaven. All that we say last week, 
fulfilled when he ascended. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says of Jesus that he is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And then it says, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The role of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is known as the session of Jesus. The session of Jesus. The word session used to mean the act of sitting down. That's not how we use it anymore for the most part. Although you might be familiar, for example, we speak of Congress being in session. It means all the representatives, they're in their seats of authority, they're ready to legislate, they're in session. And Jesus, he's in session. He has assumed his seat of power and he's ready to rule from heaven. And that's the significance of him sitting down at the right hand. That's what it means. After the resurrection and then fully at the ascension, God gave all authority, all power to him. Because of who he is, the God-man and what he had done, all rule and dominion and authority were given to him. And so after the resurrection, even Jesus says, Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Or listen to this, Ephesians 1. Paul, he's talking about God in relation to Christ. And he recalls in verse 20, that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Ephesians 1, 20 through 22. And you got to catch what that's saying. It's saying that at the ascension, Jesus assumed his new position as risen Lord over everything. There's no higher authority now. Nothing exists. No human, no angel, nothing. There's no greater power than Christ. Even Satan himself is but a worm under his feet. Nothing can challenge him. His present authority, it's absolute, it's supreme, cannot be touched That's what it's saying. And here's the really encouraging part. You get that? Here's the encouraging part that Jesus right now, he's using that power and that authority on behalf of the church. On behalf of the church. Jesus gave his life for the church. He died to redeem the church. Speaking of all true believers. They're his precious people bought with his blood. And as he sits at the right hand, he's now exercising his authority on behalf of the church. Have you ever thought maybe God has abandoned the church? You look at things spiraling out of control in this nation, the church declining, so it seems like it's been abandoned. Or maybe you think, you know, God, it doesn't seem like God's in control. I mean, how, how could he let bad things happen to, to good people, even his people? How could he do that? It seems like he's got hands off the wheel. It's like you're driving a car. Hands off the wheel. It's just going to go wherever it's going to go, out of control. That's how some people view Jesus in relation to the church. Things are getting bad. It's like he's taking his hands off and it's getting out of control. But that couldn't be further from the truth. This is his church. He's the head. And he's in control. He does not lack the authority or the power or the desire to bless his church. And he will. He's not sitting in heaven anxiously biting his nails 
was watching the church spin out of control, unable to do anything about it. He's not anxious or fearful. He's in the driver's seat, both hands on the wheel. Yes, bad things happen. Christians are persecuted, even killed. But even in that, he is actively causing all things to work together for good for those who love him, an eternal good. Jesus is working from his heavenly throne to guide the church, sometimes to sanctify the church through suffering, but ultimately to preserve the church. And nothing can stop that. So you get that, you should take comfort. And that's application right there. You should just take comfort in that. Take comfort and encouragement in the present heavenly rule of your sovereign Lord. And what do you have to fear, ultimately, for the church? Didn't Jesus himself say that not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail or overcome the church? There's no force, no power, no president, no king, no demon, not even Satan himself will prevail or overpower the true church. That's right. The Lord will preserve his remnant until he returns. The church has survived 2,000 years of attacks, and even if Jesus tarries for another 2,000 years, it will still be here. So again, take comfort in this knowledge. Find assurance knowing that Jesus lives and he reigns. Things are going exactly according to his ultimate sovereign plan for his glory and ultimately for our good. Your Savior, your, your Shepherd, He lives. So even though you may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you do not need to fear any evil, for He's with you. His rod and His staff, they comfort you, they guide you, they protect you. Your Shepherd, He reigns. And so no, He will guide His sheep, He will protect His sheep. You have no need to fear. And take comfort in this. And thank God, the ascension, number two, marks the beginning of Christ's heavenly rule. Number three, the ascension marks the end of Christ's earthly ministries. I'm going to bounce them back and forth between beginning and end, beginning and end. But thirdly, the beginning or the ascension marks the end of Christ's earthly ministries. This one's it's, it's straightforward, it's obvious, but it's worth mentioning. But the ascension signifies that the work Jesus accomplished on earth is totally finished. Hey, he's still the Savior. He's still the propitiation for our sins. But we're now relying on a past work. His once for all sacrifice on the cross. Jesus is no longer suffering the wrath of God for sin. That, that, that's done. He finished that. He's no longer paying the penalty that it's been paid. Provision has been made. There's no more penalty. It's, it's all finished. There's nothing left. For believers, God's wrath was totally spent on Jesus on the cross. So there's nothing left. That work is finished. And the very fact that Jesus was received into heaven by the the glory cloud of God himself proves this. Just recall, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus was like he was made sin. All of our sin and guilt was placed on him and he bore the wrath of God accordingly. He paid the penalty for our sin. And he paid in full. If he didn't, if if any of of your sins remained on him unpaid, then Jesus could not be accepted back into the Father's presence. 
God cannot tolerate any sin in his presence. Jesus was made sin, took on our sins. If any of those sins remained, he could not have ascended back to the Father's presence. He would have to remain cut off from God. But that was not the case because it is finished. By returning to the Father at the ascension, Jesus gives proof positive that all of our sins, they're gone forever. They've, they've been paid for and they're gone. It's a very simple point, but it's, it's so practical. I mean, already, for example, you should be able to tell that any notion of a purgatory, you know, some place you go after you die to keep paying for your sins, to keep atoning for your sins, it's bogus. What's there left to pay for? There's nothing left. He paid for it all, for those who know him. And how do you view the work Jesus accomplished on the cross? Do you view him suffering every time you sin? Because he doesn't. Do you wonder if he can forgive you? He can. Do you fear you have outsinned him? You haven't. Regarding true believers, you have to know that full payment has been made for your debt in advance. Everything you've done, even everything you've yet to do, in, in total, full payment has been made. That doesn't give us a license to go on sinning like we're free and clear, like we have a permanent get-out-of-jail-free card. That's not the point. If you're, if you're true, you know that. That doesn't give us a license to sin. But it does mean that you can experience all of the peace and the joy that full forgiveness brings. Did, did you catch that? It does mean that you can experience the full peace and the full joy that His full forgiveness brings. And the ascension is, is the stamp of approval on that. Now, how would you feel if someone came along and instantly paid off your mortgage and all of your debts? Feel pretty relieved? Would you be joyous? Would you be thankful? Well, Psalm 103, Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Your debt has been paid in full. And the ascension proves what the atonement accomplished. So if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you should feel relieved. You should rejoice. You should thank him as you follow him all the more. The ascension proves what the atonement accomplished. Thankfully, thirdly, the ascension marks the end of Christ's earthly ministries. We should be happy about that. And accordingly, number four, the last one we'll get to today. This is a big one, though. Number four, the ascension marks the beginning of Christ's heavenly ministries. So that's the flip side of that. It's the end of his earthly ministries, obviously. But the ascension marks the beginning of Christ's heavenly ministries. And I know some of these points may seem obvious, but again, I, I doubt you've probably spent time reflecting on them and really catching their significance. And you need to, especially with this one. This one is big. The ascension marks the beginning of Christ's heavenly ministries. This, of course, is a consequence of Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father. Like we said in point number two, Jesus has begun his heavenly rule. He sat down at the right hand. All power and authority has been given to him. He's in session. He's ruling. The question here is, what, what's he up to? Okay, he's at the right hand, good, but what's he doing now from the right hand? For these past 2,000 years, what's he doing now? Well, you might get the impression from 
this sitting down imagery that Jesus is now resting from his labor that he accomplished on earth. He's not really doing much. He's just sitting sitting down, relaxing. We, we kind of get this. I mean, last, last year I built a fence on our, near our house for the first time. Tim, help me. Thanks, Tim. And it was just a lot of work, though. I had to dig those, dig those post holes, pour some concrete in, set the posts, get them really straight, put up the rails, nail the pickets, built a little gate in the middle, too. It was like a lot of work. And after, I was tired, and I just wanted to sit down, have a glass of water, and just relax, rest, enjoy the fruit of my labor, just stare at the fence. You probably, you know, you know what I'm talking about, a sense of, a sense of satisfaction in something you've accomplished. It's, it's nice. And in a sense, Jesus is sitting in satisfaction over what he accomplished. He made atonement, he defeated death, and he is satisfied. But don't confuse his session at the right hand with inactivity. He's sitting, or he's sitting down in the place of authority, not inactivity. He sits down like a king to rule on his throne. And there's still much to be done, though. He's not finished with all of his work. And so again, we have to ask, well, okay, what's left to do? What is his work? What is his present heavenly ministry? What's he up to right now? So to to answer this, to help you get this, you, you first really need to understand the biblical concept of a mediator. A mediator. Do you know what a mediator is? You probably do. A mediator is a person who acts as an intermediary between two conflicting parties. Someone is a go-between. Someone who tries to settle disputes and reconcile those in conflict. So, for example, if you have two nations who are at odds near war, like North Korea, South Korea, you'll oftentimes have third parties like U.S., China, get involved and try and mediate between the two to bring about peace. Well, mediation, it's a biblical concept as well. The the Bible depicts two parties in serious conflict. God and man. The source of this conflict is our sin. And God's not to blame. He's done nothing wrong. He's perfectly righteous. We are the ones who have sinned against him. We have rebelled against his rule. We have rejected him as being king over us. And the result of this conflict is separation. There's a divide. Our sin brings up this this huge divide between us and God, this gulf of separation that cannot be crossed. Our sin created this conflict. It results in a divide. God is separated from us and we we can't cross it. This gap is too vast for us to cross. We need reconciliation for that relationship to be restored. We need to be reconciled. We need to cross that gap, but we can't. We can't do that on our own. Like jumping to the moon, you, you can't bridge that gap just by your own two feet. But thankfully, God, he's offered his mercy and he's provided a way to cover our sins. He revealed that he would bridge this vast gap between us and himself through a mediator. Through a mediator. Now, in the Old Testament, the first great human mediator was Moses. He's the first big one. And he literally stood in between the holy God and the unholy people. Through Moses, God gave the people his law, his covenant, and the people received God's mercy, God's favor. He was their go-between. Literally stood in between them and God, even on Mount Sinai. 
And at that time, through Moses, God also instituted a system through which the sins of the people could be covered. And you, you heard, you've heard of this. It's the Old Testament sacrificial system. This featured a sacrificial animal like an unblemished lamb that would be slain as a substitute sacrifice. And the blood of that sacrifice was then depicted as appeasing the wrath of God for our sin. It covered our sin. You go free. The animal dies in your place and you are free. Your sins are covered. And who performed these sacrifices? It was the priest, the priesthood. God also appointed the Levites to act as priests and they would offer up these sacrifices. And so from then on, the priests became the mediators for the people. You needed a priest. Because of your sin, you can't access God. God created his tabernacle, later a temple, and you're not allowed in. You don't go inside the temple. No ordinary people go inside the temple, only the priests, because you're, you're cut off. You're, you're not holy. You, you, you can't be in God's presence. You need a priest, someone to go between you and God, to go in, to cover your sins for you, you need a priest to make peace between you and God. The highlight of this system in the Old Testament was the Day of Atonement. One day a year, the high priest would make a sacrifice on behalf of all the people, including himself. On that day, he would take the blood of the sacrificed lamb into the Holy of Holies. That's the innermost part of the temple that even the priests weren't allowed to go in because that represented God's very presence And no one can go in there. No one's holy enough to be in God's own presence. Everyone is separated from that. But that one day of the year, the high priest would go in and he would splatter the blood of the the sacrifice onto the mercy seat and cover the sins of all the people. Make atonement for the sins of of all of them. There's a lot more details to the Day of Atonement, but the point I'm making is that the people, they needed a sacrifice and they needed a mediator to make to give them peace with God, to bring them to peace with God. And you get that Old Testament system, you get mediators. Also realize that system was imperfect. It was imperfect because the sacrifice was imperfect. The blood of bulls and goats cannot pay for sin. Those sacrifices in the Old Testament, they covered our sin like a blanket, but they didn't actually pay for our sin. They temporarily covered our sin. They didn't pay for sin. The system was also imperfect because the mediators were imperfect. You know, the priests, they're unholy too. They're sinners too. They need a sacrifice for themselves. They're not perfect. Everyone was unholy and in need of someone to reconcile them to God. But in light of all this, God also promised that one day he would provide an ultimate sacrifice and an ultimate mediator. And that is Jesus. That is Jesus. First Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the ultimate go-between. We still need someone, but now there's just one, and it's him. He is the mediator. Jesus came, perfectly fulfilling all that the Old, Te- Old Covenant sacrificial system pointed to. He's the perfect mediator. He's our great high priest, the ones for all. The Old Testament system was imperfect. It had imperfect mediators. He's a perfect mediator. Why? Because unlike human priests, he's perfectly holy. He doesn't need to make atonement for himself. 
He has no sin. And he lives forever. The old priests, they just kept dying off. They had to be replaced, but he lives forever to fulfill that function as mediator. Let me read for you. There's a lot in Hebrews. Hebrews 7, 23 through 27. It said the former priests, talking about the old covenant, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Verse 26 says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. It's a perfect mediator. He, he's the perfect priest you could ever ask for, living forever on our behalf. And he's also, at the same time, he's, he's also the perfect sacrifice. He's both the priest and the sacrifice. Being God, his blood has the power to pay for sins. Not just to cover, but to pay for sins. And being man, he's able to pay for the sins of men. Of humans, he can be our substitute sacrifice. Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 12 says, "By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down." At the right hand of God. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One offering perfected you for all time. On the cross, Jesus was the priest and the sacrifice. He was the lamb slaughtered to take away the sins of the world. And his death provided the basis for us to have peace with God. He's the bridge. He and his death is that bridge that, that, that used to separate you, that gulf that you could not cross, well, you can cross it through the cross on Him. And if you believe, you can have peace. You can be reconciled. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. While we were His enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Now you follow that. And hopefully you already see the significance of just, just of that. He's our perfect sacrifice. He's our perfect mediator. And through him we can be reconciled to God. But what does all this have to do with the ascension and with him sitting down at the right hand? Well, you you get that he's our final mediator. One of the roles of the high priest was to make sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And Jesus, he's done that. That's finished. One sacrifice for all time. That role is over. But another duty of the high priest was to also make intercession for the people. He was to pray for them, to be their advocate, to ensure that they received God's grace and mercy. Think of Moses interceding, pleading with God on behalf of the people that they would be spared and receive his mercy. And Jesus still shares that role. That work is not over. That is his present, ongoing, 
heavenly ministry. He's still our mediator. We still need him. But right now, he intercedes on our behalf before God. Romans chapter 8, 34 says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. While on earth, Jesus prayed for his followers. And in heaven, he still prays for his followers. Christ knows our frailty, our limitations, our weaknesses. Being incarnate, he even knows knows our temptations. He knows how to pray for us that we would not fail. He prays and he holds us up like supports on a bridge. He keeps us from falling. Very much like he said to Peter right before he, he was crucified. Jesus said to Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But then Jesus said to him, I have prayed for you that you would not fail. Your faith would not fail. And Jesus still does that. He still prays that your faith would not fail. Whatever Jesus prays for, he gets. He always prays the will of God. He has perfect faith. His intercession is effectual and it is unending. He never dies. He lives forever to make intercession for the saints. And so now if you get all this, you've been following this train of thought, You see him as the mediator. You understand his role now, interceding for us forever. Now you can start putting together some of those implications. For one, Christ's present heavenly ministry of intercession is the ultimate basis of our preservation and our perseverance. If you're a true believer, you've been truly born again by God, you have a real saving faith, you're you're saved. If that's true, then you can never lose your salvation. The Bible teaches. But that's not because of you. It's not because you're great or you're strong or you're so faithful. It's not because of you. It's because of Him. It's because of Christ. If you're God's child, He's not going to let you go. I mean, what? You think His intercession is going to fail? Nothing can snatch you from the Father's hand, especially if the Son is praying for you. Hebrews 7, verse 2 says, He, Jesus, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's a perfect high priest. He's a perfect mediator. He doesn't go away. He doesn't die. He's making intercession nonstop. You're not going anywhere if your name is in the book of life. This leads to another application regarding assurance of salvation. Just, Just trust him. Trust Him, and as you believe in Him, just rest assured. He's going to hold on to you. As you're holding on to Him by faith, He's not going to let you go. Take comfort in that, in your high priest's grasp. And related to this, related to Him being our intercessor, along those same lines, right now, Jesus is also our advocate. He's our advocate. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, pictures Satan as this great accuser of all the saints. It pictures Satan standing before God, hurling accusations against the saints, trying to condemn them. But Jesus is also pictured as our advocate. Think defense attorney. So it's almost the same. He's like our defense attorney, our advocate. And he's, he's pleading our case. And look, we are sinners, and we were guilty, but Jesus pleads our case 
based on the testimony of his own blood. He points to the scars in his hands and says, well, their sin is gone. It's been paid for. They're not guilty. And what more assurance can you ask for that your sin, even your sin, can no longer separate you from God? It used to, but if you're in Christ, you've crossed the bridge. Now even your sin can't separate you from God. 1 John 2, 1 says, John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When you sin as a believer, you've probably experienced some of the doubt it brings. And it it does. That's built in. And you, you might wonder, how can God love me? Can he still accept me can he, can he really forgive me? I mean, I did it again, and I've done it, I've done it so many times now. I keep struggling with this sin. I mean, can, can he overcome this? Have I crossed the line? But you need to realize that if you have that real faith in Christ, you're counting on him as your Lord and Savior. He's your master. There's no line. There's no line you can cross where you, you, you go beyond a point of no return. Again, this does not give us a license to sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 says that. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and practice the truth. And there's people who, yeah, they say I'm a Christian, but they're going around sinning free and clear. They have no heart for God, no repentance or remorse. They're, they're not true disciples. I trust you understand that. But for the one who is, just knowing that Jesus is our advocate, gives us confidence that even though we still struggle with sin, we're not condemned. You catch that point. And that's so big. Just knowing that He's our high priest in heaven at the right hand. He's our intercessor. He's our advocate. Just knowing that gives us the confidence that even though we still struggle with sin, we're not condemned. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. We're not guilty because of Him. We, we still sin, yes, and, that, and that, still, that sin still hinders our relationship with God. It does, but it will not end our relationship with God. Even on top of this, Jesus also provides the way to daily be cleansed, daily be restored with God. And that's 1 John 1.9, the verse right before, if we confess our sins. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you struggling with some sin in your Christian life right now? Don't hide it. Confess it. Don't let it steal your joy, your assurance. But as you repent, remember and receive Christ's unending forgiveness. Turn away from your sin and just turn to him. Turn to Jesus directly pray to him directly and receive his grace directly unlike old testament saints you no longer need a priest you don't need a priest anymore you don't need to go pray or confess your sins to some guy in a box because now there's there's one mediator between god and man i guess i should say you still do need a priest but there's just one and it's christ the one mediator between god and man so go to him Directly pray to him, seek him, and find his grace. It's sufficient for you.
And all of this comes as our privilege because he's alive and he's active in heaven. He's not inactive at the right hand. He is active. He's working right now on our behalf. And that gives us all the assurance and all the power we need to do everything we're called to do. None of this would be possible if Jesus did not rise and did not ascend. Well, I've got to tell you, for real, just begun to scratch the surface on the significance and the implications of the ascension. It's a big deal. You think about what he accomplished and his present ministry, and there's more. We're not even halfway. We've got through the first four. We'll get through the next six next Sunday. So you've got to come back. You have to come back next week. Hear the rest. Even from what we've heard this morning, I pray and I trust it gives you some greater encouragement to, to live your Christian life knowing our Redeemer lives, He's in heaven, interceding for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we even call to you now our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our High Priest in heaven. And praise be your name. You are worthy, like Revelations 5.12 says, like the, the saints and angels are singing, to receive all power and glory and dominion and authority on earth and in heaven forever. You are worthy. And we want to share in giving you that share of praise now. Why wait till we're in heaven to, to praise you? We, we, how can we not praise you here and now with our lips, with our lives? You've done so much for us. Just the humility of coming to earth, the incarnation, veiling your glory, not being recognized, and then suffering. Your humility, and it was all on our behalf. Yes, for your glory, but even love, you did it for us. Thank you for that. By that we live, we can be redeemed. You you did this to bridge the gap, that gulf between us and God. We, We could not cross. We would just fall over, fall into the pit. We would be lost forever. But you provided a bridge. It's a narrow bridge. Few who find it, but there's a bridge for those who place their faith in you, who turn from their sin, who call out to you and follow you. Thank you for providing that bridge. That once crossed, you are safe forever, reconciled to God. We thank you for that, Lord. And may we now simply, yes, live our Christian lives, not with a license to sin, but with a license to to be sanctified, to follow you, to pursue you with great peace and comfort, knowing you live and you, you intercede for us, with assurance and with a renewed energy to, to live this life for you. What, what is there to fear? What can stop us? We have a great high priest who lives forever and you will call us one day to yourself and we will be there with you in heaven. We long for that. May we now live for that. We thank you for our, our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.